Today's reading is Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 to 25. It can be found on page 4 of the Bibles next to your seats as well as on the screen. This is God's word. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, <clears throat> and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. The word of the Lord. I invite you to pray with me. Our God of grace, as we hear these words and as we come into this place, hearts perhaps open, but often also distracted. Distracted and consumed with many things, with busyness, with hurry, with children, with hopes and dreams either met or unmet, with struggle, pain, loss, celebrations. From all these different places we come, and the truth is we sit here more of a mess than we want other people here to know. We're all broken. We're all a mixture of the beauty you created and have put in us and the flaw and the twistedness 
that we have made of it. And so we look to this story because over and over again, it's a story of your uh, unconditional love for us, that you reach into failed lives, broken lives, and you offer grace. Now, whether we're ready to hear that or not, that is an incredible, an incredible offer to live with the rest of our lives. It is a catalytic dynamite offer in our lives, if only it is true. So will you help us to know it's true? Will you help it to become transformative as we once again listen now for your voice? In Jesus' name, amen. This, is, this chapter is monumentally important in the Bible, Genesis chapter 2. Uh, this, this section of the Bible is extraordinarily important. Why? The beginning, there you go. Yeah. Um, well, the Bible's not a rule book, and the Bible's not a how-to manual. Does that surprise anyone? Um, if you're here at City Life long enough, hopefully that doesn't surprise you too much. And a much better way to think about the Bible, once you get past it's a rule book, uh, it's something I use to, to learn the right things to do so I can get right with God and tell other people how to as well. Um, once you get past that, there's some really helpful things to understand about the Bible coming out of the fact that it's actually a story. The whole thing is a story. It's not just a bunch of disconnected things. Um, for those of you on the nerdier side, there's a theologian named Brevard Childs, Childs who decades ago, in the midst of everyone scholastically and academically breaking this all up and looking at every part and trying to discover how it's all actually pieces from everywhere else, he started talking about legitimately in scholarship circles about how it's, uh, he, he developed canonical biblical criticism. <laughs> Meaning, uh, it's looking at it as a whole. Um, so there's a legitimate scholar who affirms that. Now, if you were to break it up into four chapters or four acts of a play, um, I'm curious, I'm not going to point anybody out, but if you have some degree of confidence, like maybe better than 51%, that you would have those some titles to put the big story in if you had to come up with four headings for the whole story. How many of you would feel somewhat a little bit comfortable like, oh yeah, I've heard of that, I've thought of that, I know what those categories might be. I'm just kind of curious where we're at. Like, is that something that's common? Like, you had to split this into four categories of the big sweeping story. How many people would be able to just give a heading to four different things? Don't be shy, I see a couple over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe, no, no, that's all? Okay, well that's good, that helps me know how new and fresh this is. Let me tell you something brand new, except for a couple over here. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Let's say it together. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. That will revolutionize the way you look at this if you've always been going at it like, let's find a rule for today. You know, oh, you know, and then whatever that says. Woe to the many nations that rage. Okay. Um, <laughs> If you have a grid, a story to place all these things in, it really helps. It really helps. So, okay, creation, fall, redemption, new creation. 
Um, the story that we read today is within creation. And guess what? There's only two chapters in, I mean, there's thousands of chapters in here, right? I think. There's only two of them that deal with creation before it was poisoned and polluted and corrupted and twisted by sin. And we're in one of those two chapters. We just read half of the Bible's act of creation. So that's why we say that's pretty important. It's, it's like one of our only unadulterated windows into before things went haywire in Genesis chapter 3. Jesus sets a precedent for giving attention to Genesis 1 and 2 in this kind of way, kind of looking back to the place before things got messed up when in one of the places it's recorded in Matthew 19 and he's asked about divorce. And rather than kind of easing the Mosaic laws about divorce, Moses's, you know, Torah laws about how easy it was to divorce for a man to divorce a wife, he refuses to lessen it and instead he sets the bar even higher and says marriage is even less of something to mess with and to break up than what Moses allowed it to do. He did that because your hearts were hard. And, he's, and, so, and then what Jesus does, he goes back to Genesis chapter 1. He quotes from Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 to, to kind of firm up you know, this idea of like this importance of the vow, um, the importance of marriage. So anyway, just to say, even as you move forward in the Bible, you might get clues of creation, but it's always kind of um, tainted after Genesis 3. One of my professors, Old Testament professors said, um, that the Mosaic law uh, is basically uh, a cleanup operation. It's damage control. Um, until, and as the story moves forward, then Jesus comes, this, this newer, bigger, more definitive act of redemption. So today we look, we're, we're peering into Genesis 2, we're looking back to this rare chance to consider before things got polluted and messed up, and we're going to find that there's a song. There's a song in here, and we're going to talk about singing songs of harmony. It's ironic on a Sunday when we don't have musicians to lead us in singing. In some of the places you would hear people in the service today singing, we're actually going to have an iPod playing um, some songs. Um, We're going to look at the original song of complete perfect harmony. We're going to look at the discord that pollutes the tune, and we're going to look at the new invitation to sing. First of all, the original song. Creation is a story that is a harmonious one. God is saying over and over in Genesis chapter 1, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then he makes man and woman, and he says it is very good. This is a story of all the good things used in only good ways. Think about that. That's before the fall. All the good things. We know about all we know about a lot of good things. We just don't know about them only being used in good ways. Doesn't that kind of pique your imagination? Good things only used in a good way, in the right way. It's like a dream. And when Adam sings his song, I don't know if you noticed it's a song, he bursts out in poetry in chapter 23. It is completely untainted 
by relationship breakdown when he sings, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. No relationship breakdown, no cynicism, you know, no uncle coming up to him at the wedding day and saying, you know, really, it's all just about shut up and say yes, dear, okay? Because uh, that's, how, that's how I make it work in my marriage, okay? It's not, there's none of that kind of hardened by relationship breakdown. And we, get, we peer into this verse that explains, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife. We, we're getting it to look into this magnetism that we all have, every one of us has a magnetism like this toward relationship, towards that good, that best relationship and the best kinds of connection and relationships in our lives. We're especially familiar with it with, the, with spousal relationship, romantic relationship. This, like, why would anybody leave the stability and security of known family and go off and, and kind of start who knows what? Because of this song, the song that Adam sings. And, and t- so we peer into this from relationship imperfection. That's our context. And yet somehow we're intrinsically poetically hanging on to that ideal that that is in here. We love this. We look to it and we still have it. We allow ourselves to get swept up into it. Adam writes a song for Eve. I looked up online uh, the songs that have female names in the titles. Um, And there's a list of about 300. I could get them all onto one page if I shrunk it down and put it in three columns, one of my favorite is Barbara Ann. You know that song? Ba 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 Barbara Ann. Ba 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 Barbara Ann. Take my hand. You got me rocking and a rolling, rocking and a really Barbara Ann. Ba 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 Barbara Ann. I didn't plan to do that, but. Um, Culturally, the, ma- the marriage commitment is at an all-time low. It's never been easier, it seems, to unhitch from a spouse. Maybe never before in history were there more people sitting at your wedding thinking, we'll see how long this lasts. That's kind of, I mean, that's kind of dark, a dark thought, isn't it? We don't... And you maybe have a visceral reaction to me saying that because at a wedding, still today, we're hanging on to this ideal like it's imprinted in our soul that this, this could be, this we could sing, this could be harmonious, this is amazing. And, and while some in a wedding might be having that cynical thought, those saying the vows are not. They are grabbing hold of that ideal and that song and they believe and they're hoping and they're seeing that this could work out and this could be an amazing harmonious relationship so we still hear the song it's like it's imprinted in us celebrities you could look up the lists of those online celebrities who have gone on past that fourth or fifth divorce and believe still hung on and said maybe the song will sing with this new person or people you know who grew up in a train wreck of a divorce 
growing up and still believing in the song and getting married and actually sometimes, what do you know, an incredibly harmonious, beautiful marriage out of someone who just was exposed to such a train wreck growing up. The song of human love, it's beautiful. It's the song of human relationship, of human connection, and it's, it's in us still. It's still, there's an echo bouncing around. When you first read this, you think, well, maybe there's not going to be that much to sing about because at first it appears that maybe God and Adam are going to settle for like an orangutan or a German shepherd. (laughs) Did you catch that part where they kind of look through the various animals to look for a helper? Kind of like, well, what's that song going to be like, Um, singing for Fido? But then they don't find a suitable helper. And what does suitable mean? Well, maybe that means, maybe it's going to have to do with the garden work that has just been laid out for Adam. And maybe, so then you're thinking, well, it's, he's basically getting a garden assistant so that he can do better work of keeping the garden work going. And perhaps you picture him saying once she appears before him, all right, I got a long day ahead of me that, you know, in this garden, so um, I'm going to need a meal on the table and uh, that bachelor pad of a tent over there is going to have to get cleaned up. So I'll see you back at five. Um, and you maybe, you know, if it's just a garden assistant, you know, maybe that's what you picture, but she's not. She's not a furry companion. She's not just a garden assistant. She is, as he sings, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. As you read the story, it's almost like a surprise. It's kind of understated until all of a sudden she appears before him and he starts singing. The first work of art recorded according to the Bible comes in this moment when Adam meets Eve and he breaks out uncontrollably in poetry. He's like, it's like he's saying, you're, you're me. She's me. I see myself better now. I know who I am. I'm complete. He doesn't bark orders. He sings out a song of perfect harmony. It's rapturous. It's pulsating. It's satisfying beauty that he has now in human connection. Because what really this was getting at is what was we were clued into a little bit earlier is when God said, it is not good for man to be alone. There's the real thing. There's the real uh, thing inside of all of us that this is answering, that this song answers. And so we look into this, and, and there, there is a picture, there's a song that is so fully harmoniously connected, completely, perfectly together, and perfectly vulnerable. There's no danger or risk in this relationship. There's like a self-giving dance 100% of the time. And it's expressed as, as it finishes up, did you, the wonderful final line, The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. That's how that vulnerability and self-giving love and trust and no danger and no fear is expressed. They felt no shame. Creation. And then the story moves on. Fall, redemption, new creation. Um, Yeah. So the discord that pollutes the tune. Discord comes in. This isn't the passage about the fall, but we can't help look into this from a fallen world 
And the text even clues you in that that's legitimate. When it, I mean, otherwise, why, how would you even know about the word shame? How would you even know that it would be odd that they could be naked with no shame? We're introduced. It's the narrator is helping us use our lens of a broken, polluted relationship world to look at this and to say, whoa, yeah, there's, no, there's none of the stuff we're familiar with. Because we know all kinds of painful relationship stuff. We know now, we know so much pain and hurt and brokenness in relationships. We can't help but look through the lens at this beautiful song of harmonious love. We can't help but look through the lens of, that includes things like rape, that includes sexual predators, sexually abusive parents, marital affairs, spouse abusers. It includes things like sex trafficking. And a global $97 billion a year pornography industry. I mean, I could go on and on. I just wanted to give a short teaser list, just a teaser of all the mess and brokenness that we can immediately go to when it comes to relationship breakdown. That's, that's what our world is. That's what we know. It's in the paper and it's in your lives. And so we're peering into Genesis 2 with a curious fascination. What must that have been like? It's almost impossible for us to imagine. But that is what's being dealt with. That is what's going on. Um, one writer put it that this is, the Genesis 1 may be about you know, God and our relationship to God, Genesis 2 is about the, Genesis 2 and 3 are about the human crisis. Like the, the essential foundational crisis that we live and exist within. And in your life, you bring those things in here today. This doesn't take long to think of a relationship that is far from perfect harmony in your life. It doesn't take long to think about a relationship in your life that is far from perfect harmony, that you're not singing about right now. We bring that, we bring that right in here. That is real, and that is the, the lens through which we look at this harmonious song of Adam. Family, relationships, spouses, friendships. There's, in this room, there's pain. There's hurt and wounds, deep wounds. And there's grief. And there's sadness. Because there's a discord that pollutes the tune, that keeps us from, that challenges us and says, can you really sing anymore? Can you really get excited at someone's wedding? Come on. What's the point? Well, creation, fall, redemption, and then new creation. There's, an in, there's a new invitation to sing. Christ, Jesus Christ, reintroduces you to a time without shame. 
without the pollution and the discord in the tune. He reintroduces, he warms up your vocal cords to sing again. I mean, let's, I'll just cut to the chase and we can fill in the gaps of the story at other times. But Jesus ends up fully naked. I know some of the artwork has a little cloth there, but that's not what the Bible says. That's not what the first accounts say. It was all missing. He was on the cross. He was fully naked, completely vulnerable, facing the shame of the world. He was disgraced, which is another word for shame. He was disgraced and um, shamed before the world in his act of redemption for you. So Christ goes into the vulnerability, into the disgrace and shame, into the wrongness of human relationships. And as Hebrews chapter 12 says, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And so, if I'm saying, if I want you to believe that it's actually true, that Jesus somehow introduces you again to this, new, this song, the song that Adam sang, and reintroduces you to the harmonious hopefulness of human connection and what we were created for, this is what I would anchor that on. This is my evidence that Jesus goes into and bears all of the vulnerability on himself and gets completely unclothed so that he can clothe you and clothe you perfectly. In Revelations chapter, Revelation chapter 3, verse 18, he says in one of his letters to the early churches, so the words of Christ are that he wants to He wants you to buy clothes. He says, buy from me white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. Jesus goes into the vulnerability to save you from it. He gets unclothed to give you clothes. This goes all the way back if you just read a little bit further in Genesis then you get into when the fall happens and right away God begins. What? Repla- the, the, the shabby fig leaf clothes that, he, that they're trying to make and put on themselves, he covers them more sufficiently. But that's actually his role in saving us, in offering us something, is that all that pain and that mess and that darkness that you face, that you know of in relationship breakdown, somehow God brings clothes to cover it all even though it's still there bugging you, even though it's still there taunting you. Um, There is something wrong with us, and I know shame deals with wrongness. There is a wrongness with us. And you may know about exaggerated shame, sort of a mega shame or an iso shame that that all these ways that shame can be really poisonous, but there's a legitimacy to just knowing our wrongness. Because if you know it, then you know what Jesus has freed you of, the shame of. Not just, the gospel doesn't just deal with something bad you've done is covered up, but the condition of wrongness is covered up and reversed, and dealt with, and you are clothed, and you are free. 
Now, I want to link this, and in a sense, I guess, sort of putting our thinking caps on. Uh, Jesus, Jesus makes some allusions that connect with Genesis 2 when he talks about in Mark chapter 3, in Luke chapter 14, and in Matthew chapter 19, all these places where Jesus is quoted as describing uh, his followers' relationships to their family and brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. And so there's these things that he says related to, you know, unless you leave homes and fathers and mothers and siblings for me, you're not worthy to enter the kingdom. Isn't that interesting? Because isn't it Adam, isn't it this song that Adam sung about human connection when he says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh? Isn't that, doesn't that follow up in saying, this is why someone leaves their family to start anew? And Jesus says, unless you leave your family, what's going on? What's Jesus doing? Well, Jesus is agreeing and connecting with that original magnetism But Jesus seems to be substituting himself. That you would say, Jesus, finally. Here's bone of my bone. Here's flesh of my flesh. John chapter 1 says, The word became flesh and dwelled among us. Why? Maybe so that there's a new magnetism. That we find the harmonious song, not, not primarily or through finding a spouse, or finding someone to make vows to and sing songs about. But first, and Jesus' way of redemption and moving us towards new creation is first and foremost through this new magnetism towards him. Giving us something more significant than marriage. And so what we hear is we hear Jesus doing a couple of different things in the New Testament. It can be kind of confusing, but I guarantee you no other... I've never heard this done by anyone in a a legitimate way other than Jesus, that at the same time he raises the bar of the importance of a marriage commitment and gives, raises up total legitimacy the life of someone who never gets married. Because in both cases, so he empowers greater marriage faithfulness and empowers someone to not get married at the same time. Why? Because in both cases, there's a new primary magnetism, a primary covenant. Now that Jesus has become flesh, finally, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, that's the cry of the Christian who's seeing Jesus for who he's supposed to be. That primary relationship of commitment. And this is how God is putting us back together. And what it does in the New Testament allows the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to start talking about, well, you know, if you're married, great. If you're not married, great. And there's a new ability to not be primarily dependent on a relationship in your life for your wholeness. And in fact, the way it kind of gets worded is, well, actually, the person who's single has even more of themselves to give to that primary marriage, that primary vow, that primary bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So in a sense, at one point it's verbalized, you know, if you can go without getting married, yeah, give it a try. And uh, So what Christ does is he elevates marriage even more and singleness even more. It's good for single people to hear, actually. In a church setting, often churches are really family. You know, you're hearing a lot of family and marriage 
noise. It's really good for you to know that, the legitimacy of your station in life. So what we have in the Bible <laughs> is a theology of, of a wedding, really, because Genesis 2 is really the first wedding, and if you go all the way to the end, you'll find the bride of Christ uh, coming as Jerusalem out of the clouds. It's the church, and the groom is Jesus. And this po powerful theology of the marriage of Christ to his bride is used by Christians historically in a really powerful way. In the church, we have in our ranks, in the Christian church, people, a history and a tradition of people vowing and committing to celibacy and to singleness to serve God because of this deep, rich theology, this song, this reintroduction to sing. We have people who detach, willingly detach their life purpose from finding a spouse because that can be done because they have the magnetism again of the song of God bone of my bone in the church you know in the world the 40 year old virgin that's a joke that's a funny movie in the church it's a reality it happens and it's not a joke and it's not always because of you know the culture might say oh it's just because of lack of opportunity you know, um, no, a lot of times it's a, it's a turning towards God that makes the church a place where people would stay out of bed with other people if they're not married. Because the good gospel theology says in a post-Genesis 3 world, getting naked without a vow is like swimming adrift in a dangerous, wavy, deadly ocean. It's like spark plugs going off, isolated, with no engine that they were created to exist within. You know, like Tinder? You know that app? That's the modern version of relationship spark plugs happening out of the context within which they're created. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. You're better off. So the hope, the hope of looking at this passage is not that a Christian might buy into some rules about sex or marriage or singleness and hold on to them with a little more elbow grease and effort, but that through Christ, our ears are tuned to the song of harmony. The song of harmony. We have many songs that remind us, that have this kind of language. You ever stop and really listen to them and think about them? In Christ alone... My hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, here in the fiercest, how does it go? Drought and storm. I don't remember all the words. What heights of love, what depths of peace. Can never still <laughs> my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. Finally, some versions of Genesis 2 use the word for Adam's song. Finally, the bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Christians sing that about Christ. Let's pray. 
God, please help us to sing and to sing the right songs. Tune our hearts to your grace that we may live lives that express it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.